I'm Father Mitch Paquin, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we talk about sacred scripture through the lens of our Catholic tradition, that tradition that goes all the way back to the apostles and comes from our Lord Jesus. And, of course, we always love to have you be part of the show by adding your questions or comments. You can do that by sending us questions through email, writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com. Scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com. You can also follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Now, today, we plan to look at Jesus' return to the town of Capernaum after his first trip around to the different villages. And we'll also see, when he gets there, the determination of four friends who were not willing to take no for an answer in their quest to bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. So, we will be getting to chapter 3 in my book. The book that we're going through at this point is Praying the Gospels, Jesus' Miracles in Galilee. And you can get this by going to EWTNRC.com, EWTNRC.com, where it is item number 52885, 52885. So here we are in chapter 3, which is entitled The Healing of a Paralytic, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, the first meditation that I want us to consider in those verses is to look and pray over the reaction from the citizens of Capernaum when Jesus returns to Capernaum after his initial little tour. So we see in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Now, let's just consider this. Try to get some imaginative sense of this. Our Lord's preaching tour, this first one, would have most likely been focused on the area right in that northwest part of the Sea of Galilee. This was a Jewish side, and something I'll explain as we go through some of these episodes. The west side of the Sea of Galilee was inhabited by Jewish people. On the east side, the eastern shoreline, it was mostly Gentiles. And in this first trip, it's most likely that he would have gone to nearby towns like Chorazin. Chorazin is a town 
that, um, again, just try to picture this if you can. The Sea of Galilee is uh, over 500 feet below sea level. And it is, uh, there's a slope. The, the reason for this being below sea level is because it's on an, uh, a major earthquake fault and over these, I guess, millions of years, it's this Jordan Valley has been formed and it's sinking because it's in between, I think it's between two plates and that this is a major fault that goes all the way over to the uh, uh, Kenya, goes through the uh, Gulf of Aqaba and the Red Sea over to Kenya. And the Sea of Galilee uh, has some hills above it, some of which are volcanic. That's why when you go to that area, you see a lot of basalt. Basalt is uh, cold lava. It comes out of the inside of a volcano. The volcanoes are all extinct. That none of them are active anymore. But the, this soil is volcanic soil with lots and lots of rocks. Um, and the town of Corazine overlooks, it's not right on the shore, it overlooks the Sea of Galilee, it's up a bit higher. And Bethsaida is just to the north of that. Uh, you can walk to either one, Corazine is closer to Capernaum, Bethsaida a little farther, but that's right at the shoreline, and it's where the Jordan River flows from the north into the Sea of Galilee. It was Peter and Andrew's, James and John's hometown. So, when he returns to Capernaum, a large crowd gathers around the house of Simon and his mother-in-law. Remember, he had healed uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law in the house on a Sabbath. Now, when we saw that our Lord had left Capernaum, back at the beginning, or early in Mark chapter 1, verse 32 to 34, he had, the people had been bringing the sick to Jesus. We see in Mark 1, 32, that evening at sunset, they brought him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. We'll talk more about that as time goes on. That silence. But that was the focus, healing the sick, casting out demons. But, it's very important that when Jesus had left, the people then began to miss not just the healings and exorcisms, but they began to miss his teaching. They were looking and longing for their, the, the word that he had to give them. 
Remember how it said in, uh, also in chapter 1 that he spoke not like the scribes and Pharisees, but he spoke with authority. And, you know, it just might be that precisely because our Lord had gone away to the other towns and that they missed him, that they developed a hunger for the word of God. And this is a very important thing, especially when you think that this word of God is a word that helps us understand the meaning of existence. Why are we here? What does God want from us here on earth? And where are we going? What's the purpose of life? Oftentimes, that gets forgotten. And the Word of God helps us to put into perspective where we came from, why we are here, and where we are headed, where are we going, uh, especially after life is over. Because part of understanding the Word of God is to gain some insight into the meaning of life and death. These are points that we have to face. And quite frankly, we do very well to make sure that we reflect on death because that helps put into focus the value of life. And I think that all too often in our culture, we're very uncomfortable in reflecting on death. We don't like to do And it's understandable. But as a result of that discomfort in our society, people try to fill up the question with superficiality. If you don't face the meaning of death and the meaning of life, what you're willing to die for, what you're willing to live for, you end up becoming, you know, superficial. That's one of the reasons that uh, I think people are willing to spend a lot of time on Facebook with trivial things, recording, you know, inconsequential activities because they don't reflect and don't even want, they're frightened to reflect on the important issues of life. Now, something that all of us have, or should be aware of if we're not, is that we develop. We go from being a, a baby, an infant, we become toddlers who crawl and start to walk, become children, and adolescence, um, we go to young adulthood, which is different from adolescent period. Then we go to mature old, uh, adulthood, and then hopefully we'll get to old age. And uh, this is something that is part of what we have to do. Now, at each stage of life, we have goals to accomplish. And those goals help us with the next stage of life. And oftentimes, 
those goals stay important your whole life. So the goal for a toddler is to learn how to walk, to learn how to talk, and to get potty trained. It doesn't hurt if you learn how to eat with your own uh, fork and spoon. Those are part of the test. And hopefully, being potty trained, for instance, will be a skill that lasts your whole life long. That's a good thing to do the rest of your life. But then you also learn you know what it's like to deal with your family and your family's rules and regulations in childhood. You learn how to start thinking in adolescence. But as an adult, uh, a young adult, you're an apprentice adult, but you move to stages of greater competence in adulthood until you've got all these things to, to do. Well, we need to remember, as a number of people have brought out, that our faith and our moral development also go in stages. We develop slowly and gradually. And we learn in the earliest stages that we should pray for the things we need. But then eventually we stop just praying, I hope, Lord, get me the Christmas present I really want, which is kind of a self-centered prayer. Um, but you move from that to praying for other people and bigger concerns. This is part of the, the things we do. But just as in everyday life, we can go through certain crises in our faith. For instance, when something you've prayed for, an important thing, not just Christmas presents you want, but the sickness of uh, somebody, you pray for them to be healed, and they're not. Or you pray for your family to be able to pay its bills, and sometimes the money doesn't show up. Lots of things go wrong in life. And this brings a crisis of prayer. And through those crises in our prayer, we need to mature. We grow through those crises. And we start to question what we heard from our parents and teachers, and we have to grapple with it. And come. And too many people, I think, again, in a superficial way, say, well, I didn't get what I want. God doesn't answer my prayers. I'm going to say the heck with it all. I don't think that's going to be a way to wisdom. It'll be much more of a way of wisdom when we struggle with those disappointments and difficulties. That's where maturity starts to take place, and that is well worth it for us to examine. So we learn to seek deeper and more mature gifts, like patience, trust in God's providence, that maybe I pray for something that wasn't, you know, didn't get the answer I had hoped for, but it may well be that as I stay trusting in God, I find out that his, he did answer, but he had the longer range view in mind. Something I wanted for that moment may not have been best for me and for the people around me. 
And it's only after I stay faithful to God that I can look in retrospect. I can look back and say, this worked out better than I thought it could. These are some of the things that happen. And so one of the things we can do as we consider the people who were sad that Jesus left Capernaum to go preaching in these other towns. They wanted more miracles. They wanted more healings and exorcisms. But when he comes back, they're now craving his teaching and the deeper meaning of life. Well, we can reflect ourselves on those times in which we have disappointment in our faith life, our spiritual life, when things don't go our way. And we then want to reflect on that. Did we welcome the Lord coming back into our life? Our, the Lord will return. And I don't mean just at the end of time. He will come sometimes when we least expect. He'd, just like with Capernaum, he'd gone away and now he comes back. And they're able to appreciate better what he has to offer in his teaching. And so when he appears back in our life, do we welcome him? Do we have an openness to him? Or we say, no, no, you weren't here when I wanted you. When I thought I needed you, you weren't here. So, Lord, I don't want you now. Is that how we act? Or do we say, oh, Lord, it's so great to have you back. And I want to learn more deeply from you. And do we want to meet him on his terms? Or do we say, no, 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 if you don't do what I want you to do for me, I don't want anything to do with you. That's not the way of wisdom. The way of wisdom will come from meeting our Lord on his terms and he will give us a depth that we wouldn't have otherwise if it weren't for that absence and return we might not be so open to hearing his word such as we have in the sermon on the mount and the parables and sometimes the lord's absence makes our heart hunger in more mature ways. This would be a good thing to reflect on with these first two verses. And what we're going to do is stop there and take a break, and we'll come back with our next meditation on this passage. So please stay with us.
right, we are in chapter three of my book, um, Praying the Gospels and the Miracles in Galilee. And we are taking a look at Mark chapter two, verses one through 12. In this next meditation, I'd like to cover just three verses, verses three to five. And this is where we see some friends carry their paralyzed friend to Jesus. So we read, let's take the first part of it. In Mark chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it says, Then some people came, bringing him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. So, there's once again a crowd in front of Peter's house, as there had been on the Sabbath of, uh, of chapter 1, and they can't get the man in there, and they really want to get the paralyzed man, close to Jesus. He can't walk by himself, can't walk at all. So when they can't get through the crowd, no one will let them through, they go up on the roof. Now, the roofs were typically made of thatch, which would be um, straw, sometimes mixed with some mud that would dry just to caulk it a bit, but oftentimes just straw. And they go up there and they remove the roofing material. Now, there, are, there were houses that had tile roofs, but, you know, probably it, only, it was mostly in the wealthier people. Fishermen like Peter and Andrew and their friends would probably not have tile roof but they would have straw. And every so often you just have to change it anyway. So it would be easy to remove that. And they have this paralyzed man and he's on his pallet and he can't walk at all. So they have ropes on the four ends of the pallet and they lower him down through the roof, okay? And, you know, this was an endeavor. I, you know, I'm amazed at this myself because you don't just clear out a little clump or two of the straw from the root, the thatching. You have to clear out a significant amount. And there would have been commotion as people are removing this thatch from the roof in order to bring a whole cot uh, brought down to, to the top. Now, something that we ought to note here is that these four friends obviously loved this paralytic very much. They were very devoted to clearing out that area, to taking the initiative to go up on the roof, which means they had to lift him up 
They had been carrying him, but now they're lifting him up onto the roof because he couldn't walk or climb like they had done. And it shows that they had this strong bond of friendship. Or maybe they were brothers. Some of them were brothers. We don't know. We just know that they were companions of the man. And some of them may have been friends, some brothers, or all of one or the other. And this bond gives them, as four strong men, the energy and the ingenuity to bring their friend up there and then lower him back down into the middle of the house. And this is something that our Lord really cherishes. And that's the second part of these, this little section, little subsection, that's verse 5. In Mark chapter 2, verse 5, we read, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, first of all, Jesus sees their faith in this act of love. That cannot be underestimated in importance. There's a great line in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, where it says, work out your faith in love. And it doesn't say that faith is uh, something that you create on your own. It's a work that we do or something like that. It doesn't talk about that. But it does say that our faith must be worked out. Same message that St. James, who might well have been present right there when this happened, but certainly at other times too. St. James talks about working out your faith. And it's sometimes you'll see people who separate, you know, faith and works, and the, but that, that's not right. Our Lord recognizes this act of love as an act of faith. They didn't say any kind of creed. There's nothing mentioned about what they said or thought, but it's still an act of faith. And we'll see this elsewhere in the Gospels. For instance, in Luke, we'll see that when the woman washes his feet with her tears and dries them with her hair and anoints them with her, her oil. Jesus said, woman, your faith has saved you. So these actions demonstrate faith. And Jesus recognizes that. And in recognition of the faith, he says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And as we saw in the first time he was in the synagogue, that our Lord uh, has this authoritative word. He is an authority, and he says this authoritatively. Your sins are forgiven. Not, I'm going to pray that the Lord would forgive you. No, he's doing the forgiving. Now, we'll talk more about that next week. But 
I think it's very important that their faith leads to the forgiveness of sins. And, you know, I think it's obvious that they were seeking a physical healing. And they didn't come in sackcloth and ashes as if they were repenting of sin. In fact, no one had even mentioned anybody else's sin. Nothing is said that this man was a particularly bad sinner or anything. But forgiveness of sin is what Jesus offers the man. Now, I'd like us to reflect a bit on when we have a certain need and that in response to it, we are given something that we never even sought, something we never asked for or planned on asking for. In my book, I mention a little event that had stuck with me when I was 12. My grandmother, we always went to her house for Christmas Eve. It's a very special Polish meal called the Vigilia, and she made it uh, every year. Uh, I used to love going there for that. And she told me that I was going to love my Christmas present from her. So I was really excited because what I had hoped for was an HO train, electric train engine. You know, I, I liked playing with HO trains a lot. You know, I enjoyed that. That was one of my favorite toys. And I said, oh, great, she's going to get me uh, the steam engine I, I wanted. It was sort of a really nice one. And when we opened up the presents, the box was clearly too small. It was only that about that size, too small for it, even a caboose, get alone an engine. And it opened up, and it was a silver, uh, a sterling silver miraculous medal of Our Lady. I really tried to look happier than I was. I was, I was grateful. My grandmother was very kind, and I loved her very dearly. She was great. Um, but I really did want the engine. <laughs> That's the reality. However, the great uh, part about that gift is that not long after that, no, not long after I was 12, I stopped playing with my HO trains. And that that engine would have been something I'd put away with my other trains and left for my younger brother. Whereas, I still have that miraculous medal. After, what was that, 61 years, I still have the miraculous medal. And she was right that it was something I would really like, but I didn't realize it at the time. I bring up that story because there are lots of times, not only the adults in the lives of children, but more importantly, our Lord Jesus Christ has a better knowledge of the deeper and truer desires of our hearts. We have the things we want on the outside, but he knows more deeply what we want. And in this case, it was the forgiveness of sin.
This is what the man truly needed. He needed reconciliation with God. We don't know what he did. The, the New Testament never says. And it's not a good idea to speculate. Why not? Because... Instead of trying to know what this guy did, as if you were working for People magazine or something, instead, you can put the sins that you have done, like I put the sins that I've done, and I need forgiveness for. And not only do I you know, not always know that I need forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God, and integrity, in my life, where I, part of integrity is learning to integrate the sinful aspects of life, learning to admit to my anger and frustration, to my lust and false desires, to my greediness, to my desire to be to look better and have a better reputation and have fancier clothes than anybody else, whatever it might be, all these different things, and integrate that in there. And if he didn't have that, then it would be hard for him to walk with God. And that that integrity, that personal integrity, was ultimately a better thing than walking. So this is something that the peace of mind and heart that comes from forgiveness of sin could accompany this man into eternity. Whereas if it was just the healing of his legs, it couldn't. You know, when we die and we're a pure spirit, you don't have your legs. You don't need your legs. But when our Lord, he gives for healing of uh, sin and forgiveness of sin, that can go to heaven. That lasts forever, far longer than the use of a legs, just like the miraculous metal has been something I've had far longer than I would have had for any electric trains. And I think that is worth reflecting, okay? All right, we'll stop there. Next week, we'll take a look at a couple more of these meditations, especially focus, focusing on a crisis that took place. Who has the authority to forgive sin? So we'll take a look at that next week. Let's go to some of your emails. We have a, an email from Kathy Ann in Flushing, New York. So, dear Father Paco, I'm grateful to have found you on television and I hang on to your every word, but unfortunately I was disappointed in your recent comment regarding parents who should not have their child baptized if they're not willing to take the vow of faith for their child. This is upsetting to me because every child needs the Holy Spirit. Shouldn't we protect the child's soul and advocate for them in every way possible? Kathy Ann. Well, first of all, Kathy Ann, this is not just my personal teaching. This is the norm that the church gives us. We have to, we, we can um, do this baptism 
of an infant, if we have the commitment of the parents and godparents, for that matter, to raise the child in the faith. Because, and the reality, Kathy Ann, is that sometimes people are baptized in order to satisfy the grandparents rather than to out of concern for the spiritual welfare of the child. And the parents never teach them the faith. They don't teach them how to pray and so on. Now, of course, there's an exception. I think I, think I mentioned it when we talked about that a couple weeks ago. But the exception would be this. If the child is in danger of death, then baptize uh, immediately. If there's any danger of death at all, baptize them. And anybody can do that. But um, if it's not, then the parents have to be in agreement and to, to raise the child. Um, what we can do is pray for that child to come to know more about the faith. But, uh, and we, matter of fact, we should pray for the parents. Uh, I just came across a couple other cases where people told me that their children don't want to baptize the grandchildren. They said they want to wait until they're old enough to make their own decision. Well, you don't do that with English. You teach them English whether they like it or not. You, you prepare them to be a citizen because they're born a citizen. Well, if you want them to be prepared to know their rights and obligations as a citizen of the United States, is it not more important to prepare them for citizenship in heaven? But if the parents still say no, then I'm afraid that the church asks us to wait. Now, if the child's older and asks for baptism, then we can give it to them, even if the parents don't want to, to help. The, the child might have the gumption to do it, but as an infant, no. Okay? All right. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a couple minutes, so please stay with us. Now, I just want to remind you, uh, if tomorrow you could join me at 8 p.m. for EWTN Live, I'll be speaking with Father Ramil Fajardo about the very first U.S. citizen to be canonized a saint in the Catholic Church, and that was St. Francis Xavier Cabrini. Now, she's the first Catholic uh, or U.S. citizen. She was born in Italy, but was naturalized as an American citizen. And he will talk to us about how the National Shrine in Chicago, where she used to live. Matter of fact, I lived in the same neighborhood that she used to live in. 
and that the shrine in Chicago has her name and reflects her ministry to immigrants as a place of prayer, worship, and devotion for all people. So this is uh, something that's very, very important, okay? And, uh, and of course, we've had more saints, including many who were born here uh, in the United States who became saints as well as some immigrants. So it's good to celebrate our history. Um, talk, I may bring it up then, but I remember when they decided to have some public statues in New York that included many more women. They're only going to put up some women's statues because there's a lot of men's statues. Well, that sounds fine. Uh, and who was the number one person voted for? Mother Cabrini, because she had also worked in New York. And uh, <laughs> I think the mayor's wife at that time was not happy, and they put the kibosh. So we just have st uh, statues of Mother Cabrini inside our churches. So hopefully they won't burn any more down or attack anymore. But that's the Chicago side of me, being a little bit of a wise guy about a great saint. All right, we have an email from Kristen. Hi, Father Mitch. I'm Catholic, and my brother has converted to Calvinism. As you can imagine, we get into some heated theological debates. I was trying to explain to him why Catholics believe in sacred tradition and hold it as an equal authority to the Bible. I was trying to explain how the gospel message was imparted through oral tradition first and didn't begin to be written down until 20 years or, and more after the Pentecostal formation of the church. Uh, yeah, the first epistle, uh, first book of the New Testament to be written was 1 Thessalonians, and that was written in 51 A.D., just 20 years or so after the first Pentecost. So he said that I have my history all wrong and wanted to know what part of tradition that is not written down the Catholic Church is trying to claim because the canon of the Bible is closed. To add anything or take anything away is heresy and occult. He said Catholics worship a man-made legalism that is self-generated through documents and councils. He said if we overlay anything on Scripture, we are in error. Kristen. Well, now, Kristen, your brother has a few things that you might be able to teach him. He, he said something very important here. Ask him this. You said that the canon of the Bible is closed. That is 100% true. And that nothing after that, even if there's an apparition or something, that has to be submitted to the authority of Scripture and, of course, the tradition. So the, the, the canon of Scripture is closed. You can't add any more books, and you can't take any books away. All right? That's all true. Now, ask him this. When was the canon of Scripture closed? Ask him that. How did it get closed? And in fact, when you look at things, you see that most of the lists of the Bible books that we find 
among the fathers has only 22 books in the New Testament. And these don't always agree as to the same 22. They don't omit the same ones. They don't include the same ones. And where that becomes important is, you know, when did, again, my question, when did they close the canon? Who was in charge of closing the canon? And as it turns out, it was um, Pope St. Damasus I, who called a synod of bishops in Italy in 382, and they laid out the canon. And then the canon was also examined by the bishops of North Africa under the leadership of St. Augustine. And in 392, at the Synod of uh, Carthage and the Synod of Hippo, they closed the canon too. They, but they said, but we will submit, the, submit this to the church across the sea, namely to the church in Rome. And from that point on, the canon was closed. Now, let me ask your brother this, I, or you have to ask, I don't know him. If the canon is closed, then why did John Calvin remove seven books from the Old Testament? Why did Martin Luther try to remove 14 books, but only removed seven? If the canon is that closed, why are they trying to remove books? What he just said about if you add anything or take anything away, we are in error. Using his criterion, Calvin is in error. And he said, well, you Catholics added that books in a Trent. No, we did not. Matter of fact, at the Council of Florence in 1437, those same books were approved when a number of the Eastern churches came back into union with the Western church. The Western and Eastern church came back into union with each other, and they made a statement on the canon, and they accepted this, the canon that we have with 73 books. That was before Luther was born, and certainly before Calvin was born. And the other thing I would ask him is, does he have any examples of Bibles that did not have the seven books that his Calvin removed? You can't. They're all there. The oldest copies we have of Christian Bibles go back to the 300s, and they have 73 books in them. And they're not just, just from Rome. They're also from Egypt. There's one in, from Sinai and everywhere else. So he has given you a good criterion. If you remove anything, you are in error. And that applies to him and Calvin.
remind him of that. And in terms of something else mentioned that he is removing from the Bible, I want you to write this verse down. All of us need to remember this. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. So 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15. It says, hold on to the traditions that I left you, whether by word or by letter. That's the second book written in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians was in 51, probably about the following year or so, maybe even later the same year, he wrote 2 Thessalonians. And it says in that second book of the New Testament, hold on to the traditions. Is, he tr is your brother trying to remove that verse from Scripture? He will answer not to me, but to God for being in error, for neglecting that truth. And of course, you wouldn't know what was in the canon without the tradition. Because the Bible doesn't state what the canon contains. It's the tradition that does. It's just that he follows a very late tradition of men that eliminated seven books from the Bible. So those would be some of the starting points. And, you know, our liturgy, by the way, Take a look at the tradition. You see that the way that the apostles left the Mass is written down by people like St. Justin Martyr in his Apology and uh, a number of other uh, texts that go into the early church. Um, so there, there are lots of things. Um, yeah, the councils explain the meaning of Scripture, but they don't add to it or subtract from it. Calvin subtracts from the scripture and removes important verses and misunderstands as a result and teaches falsely. All right, here's another kind of related topic from uh, uh, Jake in North Carolina. As a Catholic in Appalachia, I get a lot of objections to Catholicism. How do we address questions regarding papal infallibility in light of the anathemas given to Pope Honorius on the 6th, 7th, and 8th ecumenical councils? Well, it does not appear that he taught that Jesus only had one will. See, there was a heresy called monothelitism that said Jesus had only a divine will, whereas orthodoxy teaches he has a human will and a divine will. The will belongs to both natures. So he has a divine will and a human will. That's uh, what, what the issue is. Well, it does not appear that he taught that Jesus had only one will. He, didn't, he uh, did nothing to stop the spread of monothelitism, which seems to have been the cause of the anathematization. I'm just curious as to how to address the issue with Protestants. First of all, the doctrine of infallibility limits itself when you read in Vatican I that the, when the Pope speaks and teaches authoritatively on faith and morals to the whole church, then he's speaking infallibly. When he's speaking to a particular group in the church, a particular individual, he is subject to error. 
when he gives his opinion, he's subject to error. And in the case of Pope Honorius, the issue was that some folks told him, he wasn't a good theologian, and they told him, oh, this, this is just a bunch of Greeks arguing about something that's no real big deal, so don't worry about it. Just to keep peace in the church, just be quiet on it and leave it alone. Meanwhile, the heresy was spreading. So he was given an anathema for, teach, for failing to teach. He didn't teach falsehood, but he failed to clarify and stand up for things because he wanted to have everything peaceful. And he was wrong in that. Trying to have just peace at any cost is not the truth. And he failed that. So he was, uh, he was a shepherd, perhaps like St. Peter, who didn't say the whole truth when he had the chance. It doesn't take away from his power to be uh, uh, infallible, but he wasn't exercising infallibility at that point. He was just a bad pope, okay, for failing to teach the truth. All right. Thank you for your emails, and the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And we can bring you this program and all of our programs only because this network is brought to you by you. So please keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and we'll be able to pay all of our many bills too. Thank you. God bless.